BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everybody, back to The Basement Binge, another episode as we continue through Animation Hall of Fave, Volume 2. Continuing with the Disney classics, Atlantis, you saw the title. Let's get right into it. Two cents, the first segment here, which is completely spoiler-free. Atlantis had to be a part of this animation season, particularly for the Disney classics. When I think of classic Disney, this is the movie that comes to mind. Not one of them, this is the movie. It's the movie that I watched the most on DVD when I was younger. There was something that always felt extra special about it, and it had such uniqueness that I really loved it for. So, of course, that longtime favorite that it is definitely made it easy in putting it in Animation Hall of Fave. But coming back to it, now that I'm much older, I recognize why it feels so different from the rest of the Disney DVDs that I had as a kid. What makes it so unique? It's an adventure film. The Indiana Jones of Disney animation, if you will. It keeps everything that makes Disney animation of this time period so classic, but perfectly captures the feeling of an adventure. It's hard to think of many other animated adventure movies, especially from this time period. Yes, Treasure Planet, which is next week, is one, but this was a year earlier than Treasure Planet. From the production experience of the crew to the writing and actual film, this perfectly captures the excitement and nostalgia of a group of experts coming together to discover something amazing. And it's really exciting. Atlantis is full of everything that a good adventure film needs, a great protagonist who we want to win and who we invest in, a team of side characters behind that protagonist who we want to equally win as well, and they are fleshed out as much as the protagonist. They feel like real people with real stories and experiences. And the rich world worth discovering that is Atlantis, with equally unique people, with a rich lore complete with a new language and intriguing technology, and then of course the essential antagonist who wants it all for his own personal gain. And the journey to Atlantis, the actual physical traveling to Atlantis is full of striking visuals and not just from an animation standpoint. There's beautiful music that perfectly captures the feeling of exploration and liberation. There's one particular sequence that fills my soul with a sense of adventure in a way that not many other films can. And it's great to come back to a childhood favorite 
and see that it's still just as good, but also to see all the reasons that made it so loved in the first place and have a little bit more maturity and appreciate them. The voice performances, including from the great Michael J. Fox, are incredible with a stacked cast adding to the lovability and reality of these characters. The animation that, as I learned, is technically impressive for the time, but is timeless in its visuals and beauty. Writing that creates characters you're never going to forget, but uses them in a worthwhile adventure that follows all the classic tropes appropriately, but is surprisingly very progressive by today's standards. It's just as rich and rewarding as I remember. If you haven't seen Atlantis The Lost Empire, you need to take the time to. It's worth it, as all underrated Disney lists usually mention it. It's a classic animated adventure movie. Go enjoy it for what it is. If nothing else, these characters are so great, it's worth seeing at least once. There are some classic lines that I'll just give you as an example that just add to this spirit of this film perfectly well. I've quoted these lines for years, but these are two new favorites that I found after this watch. One of them being in a submarine when they're traveling to Atlantis over an intercom. Oh, one of the characters announced what's for dinner and says, tonight's dinner special is baked beans, musical performance to follow. Wait, who wrote this? <laughs> or another one that I loved. You're so skinny that if you stood sideways and stuck out your tongue, you'd look like a zipper. Not really sure what that means, but I thought it was hilarious. There is a very, very personal love that I have for Atlantis and that humor and the lines and just the, the spirit that Atlantis is. It's, I'm very familiar with it and it makes it very easy to come back to and continue to love but even if you're not nostalgic for it like I am, it's a wonderful film in that it is really unique in animation as an adventure film. There's, yes, tons of other films that kind of came after this, but especially for Disney, this is a unique 2D animated film. And the animation is incredible. The voice cast is awesome. And these characters really, really are memorable. It's a fun film. It, it really just is fun. It's go check it out if you haven't seen it. Even if it's been a while, I promise you'll, you'll enjoy it. I was going to save this for a little bit later to mention, but I'll just mention it right now. The crew that worked on this is the same crew that worked on The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and they wanted to keep them together, and so they started production on Atlantis, but they wanted to do something different. They wanted it to not be another Disney musical, so they actually made a t-shirt for themselves that said Atlantis, fewer songs, more explosions, and it definitely lives up to that t-shirt, uh, so go watch it for the explosions. So let's get in on to the other segments here. First, just really, really brief announcement. It's, it is the last month of Animation Hall of Fame Volume 2, and I am going to be giving away a movie at the end of this, at the end of February. So the remaining month of February, you've got to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're currently listening, or I highly recommend podchaser.com. If you want to leave a review, you can go to podchaser.com slash the basement binge. It's a great place to review any podcast, and it allows you to leave reviews on each individual episode, not just the podcast as a whole, so you can have multiple entries into the giveaway. Again, any review that is left during the month, the remaining month of February, will give you a chance to win one of two prizes. The first prize being a copy digitally or physically of any of the movies I reviewed during Animation Hall of Fame 2. Second place prize is a $10 gift card to either a movie theater or a video on demand service of your choice. Additionally, I would love to get your thoughts on the coming up films, How to Train Your Dragon. Obviously, I mentioned that Treasure Planet is next. Get your thoughts in for that, but also the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy. I would love to hear all of your thoughts about that as those episodes are coming up next. Let's have a brief interruption here and we'll get on to the next segment. Thank you for listening to that and supporting The Basement Binge. Let's move right along into Pick Your Poison, which is a rating scale. Here at The Basement Binge, the rating scale is based off the bingeability of a film. Choosing how I would choose, choosing how I would choose. Wow, that's really well said to interact with the film after this particular watch. So the options are 
to never watch it again, which is extremely self-explanatory. Above that is to stream it, meaning it's on a service I'm already paying for, just kind of browsing, looking for something to watch. I'd be willing to click on it. Above that is to rent it, pay a few dollars in the right circumstances to see it again, digitally or physically, and the top of the list, buy it, own it, watch it as many times as you would like. It's an interesting scale because it has a financial part of it as well, but this is a film that I already own. So yeah, it's a buy both in the past as I bought it, but also in the ranking scale, it is a film that I buy. I have already seen this film a bunch of times and I see no reason to change that. Another reason that I really would buy this film is because of the bonus features, or, or not that I would buy it, that I would recommend other people to buy it is because of the bonus features. On top of them just being really interesting and cool to learn about the creation, they're actually really well produced. For example, they have a little mini documentary, if you will, about the voice acting, right? The bonus feature is about all the voice actors. And when transitioning between actors to talk about this next actor, they would actually have a scene between those two respective characters in the proper order to switch between the characters. So for example, I don't remember the exact order. If they were talking about Michael J. Fox, who plays Milo, and then they were going to talk about Claudio Christian, who plays Helga, they would show a scene where Milo talks to Helga and Helga replies so that it's they're talking about Michael J. Fox and then Milo talks and then Helga talks and then they talk about Claudia Christian who plays Helga. I mean, really small detail, but just a great example of how well produced those bonus features are and a great reason I own the film. I kind of miss when bonus features were such a big deal. It's it's fun to see how many of like the producers and the directors when they're talking about it, they're mentioning, oh, we hope you enjoy this on the disc or we hope you enjoy this on the DVD or we're glad we can show you this on the DVD. It's, it, I miss the time when bonus features were something that were really thought about and produced for the purpose of selling physical copies of the film. So on to the next segment, Live Up. This is where I talk about my expectations going into the film, even on a rewatch, and if it is able to live up because I'm so good with names. This is a great segment, though, for this type of film, a film that I love like Atlantis. For the longest time, this was my favorite movie. Not one of them, the favorite. Like I already said, I watched this tons of times on DVD when I was younger. I love the character of Milo and the other characters. I don't think I realized why, but I loved him for taking risks and discovering himself, fighting against impossible things to do the right thing. But more than that, just being so boldly who he is. And I was really curious to see what this special sauce was that made me love it so much for all these years. And like I kind of mentioned in two cents, it's really the adventure aspect of the film. It's obvious to me now that that's what it is now that I'm older. The, the team that worked on The Hunchback of Notre Dame, like I mentioned, came back and wanted to work on this together. They wanted to stay together. But again, they wanted to make something new. And those t-shirts with fewer songs, more explosions. It definitely exceeded my expectations in regards to that. Atlantis has a lot more action than I remember. It definitely is an action adventure movie, not just an adventure film. And it's so well crafted visually, but also in the sound design and the locations of the action, like that final fight they have in the narrow volcano. It's new and refreshing and really exciting to see and really well told visually and I was also really surprised to see how great the animation still looks. There's a lot of digital effects used, not quite as many as Treasure Planet, which we're going to talk about next week, but this film looks amazing. Part of that is a very comic book-esque look that I absolutely love. It's very, very unique, and it definitely didn't disappoint, and my memories of this unique look uh, are proper. It, it, sometimes things in your memory are always a little bit better, but no, this, this looks as good as I remember it. And the lore they created for this world as well. No wonder I was obsessed with it, recreating the story with my toys and new ways and expanding on the story in my mind. They created enough to know the right amount of stuff in the film, but also to give you a sense that there's so much to expand upon outside of the film and in your head. 
If I was a little bit older when this film came out, I probably would have learned to speak Atlantean, like been fluent in it. That's how strongly it captured my attention. And, and I thought a part of that, you know, and you're kind of looking back that that was just kind of my youthfulness and, and the impressionable age that I was. But I have to give more credit to the writers and the crew who created this world of Atlantis from all this cool research to just displaying it. It feels so real and lived in that we only get to see a sliver of it, and it makes me desire to see more of it even now. But as far as living up in expectations, the one that was exceeded the most is the music. My goodness, James Newton Howard, he knows how to make one feel like they're on adventure. This music is exceptional, and I forgot how great both the theme for Atlantis is, but all the music. So yeah, it lived up. It's, it's always interesting coming back to something that you feel a lot of nostalgia towards, especially film, because my appreciation and understanding of film and what quality film is has changed and expanded as I get older and experience more and more of it. And it's great to see that this still continues to be as great as I remember it. I know I don't think it's like the greatest movie ever made like I kind of used to think it was, but it still is a great adventure film and it is still a great piece of animation. And I'm so glad it, it brings so much joy to see that it is, it, it is as good as I would hope it to be. That's always rewarding. So let's move on to the next part of this here and, and get into a little bit more. Make a decision with lame, fave, or fame. Hello, everybody. You're right. Simmer down. Simmer down. Thank you. Okay. This is a segment just for Animation Hall of Fave talking about if in the, in the supposed Hall of Fave, whatever it is, is this an entry that is lame that shouldn't have been suggested and disappoints? Is it a fave where it's one that I just recognize I love it, but not everybody has to or fame where I recognize it's a piece of animation and filmmaking that needs to be remembered and acknowledged for some type of achievement or just for being so high quality, I guess. And I'm having a really, really hard time with this with Atlantis. Without a doubt, it's a fave. No questions asked, but I'm struggling to know if it's deserving of fame. This is a very unique animated film for its time, breaking the mold of Disney animation by making an action-adventure movie with fewer songs and more explosion. And then there's also a very unique visual style to it that's unlike many other animated films. The closest thing I can think of is Hercules, but that doesn't even get close. And then there's also a lot of digital effects that were used, including digital animation and 3D models. They're a lot more than I thought, and they don't look aged at all. They still look incredibly impressive, but it doesn't feel significant. It doesn't feel like that's the reason this film is remembered. And so it doesn't feel like it earns it into fame. This has made it onto just about every single underrated Disney list, and it's got to stay there. But I, is it worthy of fame? I'm having a hard time deciding. But this is what I have decided. Either this or Treasure Planet is going to make it into the fame category. I know without a doubt both of them are faves, strong faves, almost seeping into fame, but I'm just going to pick one of them to be the Disney animated adventure movie. So you're going to have to subscribe and listen to the Treasure Planet episode that's going to come out in a few days. I promise I'll pick one and I'll announce it during that episode. But without a doubt, this is at a minimum a very, very high fave. I love it. And I know that many, many other people do. And these 3D effects and the animation is kind of groundbreaking. And the unique storytelling and kind of expanding of that Disney mold is unique and important to the history of Disney. But it's, it's, it's not strong enough to just say like, oh, everyone should recognize it for its greatness. I do think the Treasure Planet is going to take that a little bit more. Um, but again, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Without a doubt. This is a favorite and will continue to be. So let's move on to bench points and talk about the production 
of this film and all that went into it. There's not a lot of binge points outside of that that I want to mention. I thought about listing off a bunch of my favorite lines, but after learning more about this film, I'm just going to pick one, and this is what it is. You done stuffed my wagon full of mustin' with non-essentials. Look at all this. Cinnamon, oregano, cilantro. What in a cockadoodle? Cilantro. What is this? That would be lettuce. Lettuce? Lettuce? It's a vegetable cookie. The men need the four basic food groups. I got you four basic food groups. Beans, bacon, whiskey, and lard. So that's Cookie, the chef, if you haven't seen the film or if you don't remember. And that is a quote that I have never forgotten for years. Every time my wife or anyone asked me to get lettuce out of the fridge, I quote that line. And Cookie, as I learned, was played by Jim Varney, who I did not know this at all. I, I, I didn't even know who Jim Varney was. Like All I knew was the character of Cookie. But he was diagnosed with lung cancer in 1998 after being a heavy smoker for many years. But he wanted to continue to act, so he quit immediately. He ended up going through chemotherapy, but it was unsuccessful. And when performing his voice work for this film, he knew that he was going to die before it was finished and that he wouldn't be able to see it. And he performed all but one of the lines for Cookie. The final line in the film is the one he wasn't able to perform, and that's done by Stephen Barr. But Jim Varney, he ended up passing away in February 2000, about 18 months before the film was released. And I never knew that. I never even knew who he was. He was just a character cookie. I also found out in my research, though, that he is the voice for Slinky Dog from Toy Story. But learning all that now, learning about the person behind the voice that I, I've never forgotten for years, makes it feel very special. And I got really emotional when I was writing it because life is short. And I hope that what I'm doing with my life, I can do with the same conviction up to my dying day and hopefully have as much joy in my voice as Jim Varney was able to capture in Cookie. So that's going to be the only quote, although this is filled with them, but it would take up the rest of the episode to go through them anyway. So let's just talk about the production of the film, which is tons of fun. Like I mentioned multiple times, it started with the crew, particularly the directors who worked on Hunchback, wanting to keep that team together. So they ended up all going to dinner together at a Mexican restaurant and started talking about all the films that they love, talking about seeing Star Wars or Raiders for the first time in theaters, eventually agreeing that they don't make films like they used to, like so many have said. And they decided that they wanted to make a movie like they used to. And so they got an idea of an action-adventure movie kind of immediately. They wanted to push Disney in a new direction by going back to its adventure roots from about the 60s or 70s, but doing it with animation. The, the idea started being a team of experts going out to discover something together, drawing very much from their experience as a filmmaking crew. Atlantis, being the place to discover, didn't come until much later, but the entire crew loved the idea of fewer songs and more explosions and got to work on it very quickly. And everything they did, they did with a lot of passion. When Atlantis, that idea was settled on, they did tons of research. And it was funny, in the bonus features when they're talking about it, they mentioned doing all their research on the internet as if that's some, some novelty, some new amazing thing. That, I mean, I do all my research on the internet. But anyway, they did all the research on the internet. And because of that, they ran into a lot of crazy ideas, but also some serious ideas. That The purpose of this research was to create a plausible impossible, as the directors called it. One idea that they saw online was that Atlantis has this living thing at the center of it that powered it and gave the whole city life, that it was the connected consciousness of all the people there. And that's what started the idea of the crystal and really spawned everything off in Atlantis. They created a rich mythology for Atlantis. They didn't hold back in crafting anything. They had an entire team devoted to creating 
just the mythology of Atlantis. One story artist, whose name I sadly can't remember and I forgot to write it down, created an entirely self-contained oasis. I don't know if you've ever seen those like little glass globes that have a little like real plants and water in it and they it's totally self-contained. That individual made an oasis and had a proper explanation of how everything worked together to create water and plants and oxygen and light and gravity and the flowing water over Atlantis and all those things and had an explanation of how that would all work around the crystal at the center of Atlantis. And that's the extent that they went to with everything. The Shepherd's Journal, for example, there's a deleted scene that you can watch on Disney Plus that was going to be a part of the movie. They had it drawn and colored and even put into the film where they had a ship of Vikings with the Shepherd's Journal trying to find Atlantis, ended up getting destroyed by the Leviathan, and the only thing remaining being the Shepherd's Journal. And that's just a part of the history they made up for the journal. We may not know it exactly as an audience, but you can feel that everything has a deeper mythology of its own and makes it the entire story feel very rich. They didn't hold back in creating the mythology of Atlantis. As you've seen in the movie, they even made up a language. They hired Mark Ockrand, who you know from his Star Trek languages, and he made up the speaking dialect for Atlantean. And then they had an artist make up the language, the visual alphabet for Atlantis based off the dialect that Mark created. And this really came from a place of love, falling in love with the mythology of Atlantis and the mystery behind it and wanting to be able to pass that along to future generations. They talked about how it was so exciting for them to discover this newness that they wanted to pass on that excitement to others. This excitement ended up creating tons of idea though. They had so many different creatures and monsters all throughout the film, including something like called lava whales, which were literally whales in lava made of lava. Anyway, the, the first draft of the script, because of all these things they had created, was 155 pages, which is long. So the first edit that they had only had the first two acts of the film, and it was over one hour and 20 minutes. 155 pages of script if each page is about a minute, which it normally is, that's over two and a half hours long. They had a lot of ideas for this world that they cr had created and ended up making it a little bit overstuffed. But being the good filmmakers that they are, they realized that there are tons of exciting ways to tell a story about a team going into the earth to discover something. But they needed to find the way to tell that story as emotional as you could. What is that story that connects you to it and to its characters. And that's what they sought after. And they had to trim a lot off. One example was Milo was going to be a descendant of Blackbeard, the, the pirate, and that that was going to be a part of the history of the Shepherd's Journal. But they found that Milo discovering himself and making a connection with the crew was more impactful than Milo discovering his inner pirate, which is funny to me, but also true. Or that deleted scene with the Vikings, like I mentioned, they, they cut that off. And John Safford, actually, who was part of the story department, he was... When they were watching the film, he was worried and, and said to them, you're going to fire me when I say this, but we need to cut the Viking prologue out. It's, it's too long before we get to Atlantis. Taking 40 minutes to get to Atlantis and the movie being completely different when we get there makes it hard to care about the Atlanteans. And so they changed it. He suggested opening the film with Kida as a young girl, still starting off with the action sequence bang that the directors wanted, but having an emotional part of it that really ties you to the story of Atlantis. So even though they did get a little overexcited in ideas, you can tell that the quality storytellers that they were found ways to make this story one that we would remember. And it's one that I have. I remember these characters and not so much the adventure that they go on, but I just remember the characters and they found a great way to balance those things. 
they found a balance between the action and the heart of the story. Like the sequence where they're traveling underground to Atlantis. It's a quicker montage, but it's filled with incredible visuals, reminiscence of a great adventure film. But it never lingers too long on just visuals, always coming back to Milo and the crew and the bond that they are making together and the very real personal experiences of all of them. So we get both great visuals and animation, but we remain emotionally involved in the whole journey. It's a great balance that they strike. Now, to talk a little bit more about this visual style that they created, they wanted to keep doing new things not just with the adventure part of it, but in the visual language as well. They wanted to feel, as they described it, like a comic book, to have the angles and action and graphic quality of reading a comic. And when designing Atlantis, they especially didn't want it to be the typical Greek designs that so many of us have seen. And so they had this design sheet, which in essence was just like a piece of paper with some pictures and some drawings that they would give to art designers to give them some ideas to start with a film. And in the corner, they had a Greek temple with a, you know, with a circle and a, a line through it to say to not, not do that because they didn't want it. But also they wanted to have the style be new for Disney. They didn't want to get the same thing that you get in typical Disney animation. So these production designers and art designers they have, they actually hired as freelance designers from live action films to get a new look that you normally wouldn't get for animation. They didn't mention the names, which frustrated me. They kept talking about how they were great live action designers. The only films that they mentioned by name were Men in Black and Jurassic Park, but they kept talking about how they were very talented designers. And they are, I mean, look at the movie Atlantis, but I wish they mentioned some of the other work they were on. But they didn't stop there. They went and brought on a full-blown comic artist Mike Manila, whose comics, particularly the Hellboy series, the two directors, Gary and Kirk, fell in love with those books and loved the, the, the art style of it. And he was brought on and ended up receiving credit as a production designer for the work he did in helping them design the film. And they took all these designs that they came up with and kind of divided them into two different halves. They had the invading explorers with smoke and loud machines that are very angular and sharp and very rigid, and, and I have a strong trust in technology. So the crew and some animators actually went out to World War I submarines and went into them to see what it was like to design based off of that. They went and saw a bunch of World War I tanks and other artifacts to get the design, but also to design the, as what they called the umbilical cord to Atlantis or the, the caverns that they go through. They went out to Carlsbad Canyon and went underground to experience what it was like to get a sense of exploring underground. And it's great to see that that definitely gave the crew an experience of coming together to discover something and that again leading into the film. So they had that design, right? Not kind of got distracted on the umbilical cord there, but they had the design of the explorers with their machines and angular designs. Then they had Atlantis. It was organic crystal-based technology, as they called it. It was very smooth. The same artist who I mentioned earlier who created the Oasis of Atlantis described the design of it as being very ethereal. So as you can tell, not just me, but the creators, they had such a rich love for what they were creating and this film they were making, the story they were telling. And to maintain the look of an action adventure film, they actually animated in widescreen instead of your traditional square format, which is very abnormal. But it allowed them to get longer scenes because the drawings had to be smaller so they could animate a lot more. The drawings were wider, but they were also shorter from top to bottom. So they ended up being smaller drawings to fit on a regular piece of animation paper. And these scenes look great because of Ed Gerter. He's actually the layout artist and he's kind of responsible for the cinematography, if you will. And this film has great cinematography and camera movement and blocking. And it's because of his work and how he laid out these great scenes that so many great artists were composing. It was a lot of work to compose all the things they were crafting together. 
3D effects, visual effects, 2D hand-drawn animation, all combined into one thing. And to just give you some examples, the Leviathan, the submarines, the subpods, and even the Atlantean fish ships, whatever they're called, were all 3D models that were animated with 3D effects. The random crew that's around helping to get things done, they called them Steves, I think, if I remember right. They just had a generic design, a generic model with just different hats and facial hair that they would swap out on them to make them a little bit more diverse. And then they also had visual effects for all the things like smoke and gunfire, lava, water simulations, bubbles, lasers, all of those things that you traditionally associate with visual and digital effects, they were doing as well on an animated film. But they didn't just use 3D models for the big pieces like the Leviathan and pods and those types of things. They also would use 3D layouts to create an environment, but then would paint over it in 2D so that the like, for example, the opening with the Atlantean ships when they're flying through the city and they kind of go through that canyon looking thing. That's a 3D model that is then painted over to match a 2D style or the tunnel that they fly through towards the end of the film when Kida is in that box thing and Milo is hanging on to it and then the lava is behind him. That is a 3D model, including like the little trap thing that she's in, but also the tunnel with a 2D painting over it. So clearly there was just a lot of ambitious work in crafting something that looks great. And they really captured the spirit of an adventure film. Like the phenomenal scene when they launched the sub for the first time with the camera gliding up and seeing the submarine and getting closer to that eye of it, if you will, and seeing Milo. The sub and the Steves inside of them are a 3D model, but Milo is 2D animated. So they track the drawing to the 3D model and have it get bigger as the sub comes closer to the camera and then pass out of frame. I mean, that's phenomenal, the work that went into crafting a consistent visual style and using all the different techniques that they were to make a great looking film. But what is all this without sound? The other part of animation is sound design. You don't have ambient noise to put a microphone in and record. Everything has to be created. So Gary Rydstrom, who did the sound effects, he has worked on such films that you might know, like Jurassic Park, a bunch of Steven Spielberg films, Terminator, Star Wars, so on and so forth. Very, very talented uh, sound designer. He made quite a rich soundscape to go with this wonderful animation, and it, it matches perfectly. I mean, again, one of those things that I appreciate more as I'm older is the, the work that goes into creating the sounds that match the story and, and tell the story audibly so well. One detail in the sound design that was made part of the, one of the sounds they used was a toilet seat. They were used for the Atlantean sounds. I'm not sure exactly how they used a toilet seat, but that was one of the things they mentioned using. And then the music. My goodness, James Newton Howard, he approached the craft of this film like live action as what he said. He did the same thing with Treasure Planet a year later. He, he, and he captures this orchestral expansion perfectly. And it, it to go really well with an adventure film. They, they love the music so much that they intentionally left moments of no dialogue to let the music tell the story. And I'm so glad that they did. Like that phenomenal scene with the initial submarine dive. I mean, that is a fantastic scene. And a big part of that is the music. Now, the last binge point that I want to talk about is the ending of the film. If you've seen The Hunchback of Notre Dame, you know that these directors love to end a film on a big, sweeping, expanding shot, which is a lot of work in animation, particularly with Atlantis, because they wanted a lot of layers. They wanted to see all the details. They didn't just want something flat. They wanted all the details as we zoomed out. And so it starts with Kida and Milo climbing up on this uh, statue. They would be about six inches. Their drawings would be about six inches tall on a set that's about 16 inches on a piece of paper that's about 24 inches. 
it, it starts with six inch characters on a set that's about 16 inches and goes and expands back to what would be about 18,000 inches in comparison. But every drawing from the beginning to the end is on this 24 inch piece of paper. And so they had to combine all these layers and layers and layers to get the depth and get the detail, which is I mean, a ton of work for those artists who were drawing that. And then we have those 3D modeled Atlantean fish ships flying around. There really was a lot of layers and it's a great scene to end out the film. There's a lot of scenes in the film that I love, but let's talk about what is my favorite in the very next segment, least and likes. This is my least favorite scene and my favorite scene. So my least, I'm being honest, I do not have one. I love each moment of the film, whether we're exploring more of what makes up Milo or connecting him to the rest of the crew or exploring the rich world of Atlantis. Everything feels rewarding and a lot of that is nostalgia, but there's not a moment of the film that I'm, I'm not enjoying. I've really tried to go through and, and see, you know, is there a sequence or a character? Is there something that I don't particularly enjoy? Then this is the smallest, smallest nitpick and that would be that the Atlantean king who mentions he tries to use a crystal as a weapon that's just mentioned really quickly. Like, why did he have a weapon? How did he use it? I mean, what, what does that even mean? And why was like he surprised at the beginning? I don't know. It's again, very, very weak thing that doesn't really matter that much because he otherwise is a great character. But that's the closest thing I could get to to a least favorite. So what is my like or my favorite? This was hard to pick. But I'm going to go with that scene that I just mentioned, the initial dive sequence of the submarine with the music. That is the moment that is so powerful in crafting this feeling of adventure and liberation and the desire for expansion and personal exploration and excitement. I mean, that is a phenomenal scene. Most of it goes to the achievement of James Newton Howard and his music, but in the animation, the look of it, and, and also the storytelling leading up to that point, it's an exciting scene. And I really, really love it. I've never forgotten that scene for a reason. So let's get into the last segment here, Fall In. This is where I talk about the themes or important messages or takeaways, the moral of the story, as my dad often calls it, for the film. And it's I'm going to use a line that they mentioned in the bonus features when talking about all the people that they brought on for the story. As you could tell through the binge points, there was a lot of other people that they brought in to collaborate on this film, and they called it plussing. The more people that work on it, the more people that push this ball down the field, the better it will get, the better we will move, and the better story we will tell. And so they brought on a lot of unique people and continued to plus, as they called it. So the film crew had this great idea towards working together with other experts. The same idea is portrayed in the film. Milo wouldn't make it to Atlantis without the help of Mole and Dr. Sweet and Vinny and Audrey and Mrs. Packard and Cookie, even Helga and Rourke, but especially Mr. Whitmore. He would not get there without the crew to help him discover things. It's something that's been on my mind a lot lately. I'm a pretty independent person, but you know, my love language is, is service, so I don't know. Explain that to me. But anyway, I'm a really, really independent person, and if I want something done, I feel like I have to do it. I don't always do it, but I feel the responsibility that I'm the one who has to do it. That hasn't been working for me too good in life. It's been dragging me down quite a bit and getting me to some big ruts in life, and in combination with some other things. I'm not the only thing, but as I've been discussing with my wife and my parents, trying to seek counsel and advice, what I can do to change my life around, to get out of this mental and emotional hole that I've dug for myself and move on to better things that are more of what I want and the lifestyle I want to live, I've realized that it's something that I can't do without the help of other people, that I'm going to have to rely on them to do things that I can't expect myself to do at all, especially 
as that this journey requires taking risks. That's not something you can do alone. And I, I felt very grateful as I've realized this as well for my wife and my family, particularly my wife and all the ways that she does help me. But I'm realizing that I haven't relied on that help enough as much as I should. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I love Milo. I feel like him at the beginning of the film, super excited about something else that I'm not doing in a place that is less than my dreams but is somewhat acceptable and he's competent in the place that he is in and the many people around him are telling him to not take the risk of doing something else, of doing something brave and adventurous. As Mr. Hartcourt, one of the people at the museum, says to Milo as he threatens to quit, you'll what, flush your career down the toilet? You have a lot of potential, Milo. Don't throw it away chasing fairy tales. And I love the way that the score matches the sincerity of those comments. He does believe that Milo has potential. And a lot of people believe that I have potential. I think that I believe that I have potential, but I don't want to throw it away in things that are risky. But I want to discover more of who I am and what I dream of. Like Milo discovers himself and who he is and connects with people in the process and eventually discovers Atlantis. I appreciate Milo's bravery. That is essential. But I'm learning the need for a team to go with you. This looks different for everybody, but Milo really would not make it to Atlantis without the crew behind him. And it's not that everybody has to do the same thing or they do things that Milo is capable of. Milo has to do things that only Milo can do. They will not get to Atlantis without Milo. And I think that in this journey of myself, I'm not going to get to where I want to be without myself. No one else can do it for me. But in the journey that I'm taking, I need a crew to get me there, to do things for me that I can't do or that would take too long for me to do or distract me from doing the things that I am capable of. And as we rely on these people, we rely on them at different times, to different extents, and in different lengths. Mole does nothing that Dr. Sweet does. Mole and Vinny do similar things, but in different ways, both serving different purposes. And that is a powerful message. It's something that Sylvester Stallone talks about when he was making Rocky, talking about how he realized that truly no man is an island. As you work to figure out yourself, particularly to move on to something better, you find people that you work well with and incredible things happen as you work with those people. It's always been a part of the story of Atlantis that I love. And I don't think that I necessarily recognized it with this level of seriousness or this level of maturity. It was always just something like, oh yeah, these people are all cool and that's fun that they work together. And they're all really unique and idiosyncratic and I like that. And you know, and Mole's funny and Dr. Sweet's so nice and he talks really fast and Vinny has great jokes. And, you know, all those things, like I felt the camaraderie of those people. And I think that I always enjoyed, like I mentioned in the Lupin episode, I enjoy camaraderie, but beyond just camaraderie and enjoying being together and making connections, there's an achievement that is only possible through a united teamwork. And Milo has no problem, isn't ashamed in relying on those people and he shouldn't be. And I think that that is a, a difficult message that I'm learning right now, but I'm grateful for both a reality that's teaching me that lessons of very, very real experiences, but also a great rewarding film like Atlantis to teach that through a wonderful adventure to a beautiful city of Atlantis. So yes, if you can't tell, the film is definitely rewarding even years later. And, and so maybe as I go into Treasure Planet, maybe this message that is very sincere and very personal to me might bring it into the fave section, but we'll have to see for Treasure Planet. So subscribe to The Basement Binge wherever you're currently listening for that next episode part of Animation Hall of Fave. I would also love to get your thoughts on How to Train Your Dragon. Additionally, you have the rest of the month to leave reviews and enter that giveaway. Please leave reviews. It helps out the show more than I can ever express. It's how people discover the show and recommends the show as quality. So your reviews really do a ton. I would appreciate any of them. But once again, if you haven't heard it enough, this is Animation Hall of Fave Volume 2 here at The Basin Binge. My name is Harrison, and that's all for now. Ciao, ciao. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.